So glad to be back here preaching again. Uh, there's uh, a bit of a tension when it comes to preaching. There's a handful of tensions. Uh, one of them is, oh, the, the tensions is that I truly enjoy this so much, and yet there's a weightiness to this. And so one of the things that I would ask that you would continue to do is to continue to, continue to pray for me. Uh, I need lots of prayer in lots of areas, uh, but prayer specifically for the preaching ministry, um, that the Lord would give grace and wisdom as, uh, as I prepare each week and preach. Uh, so let's go ahead and uh, begin with a word of prayer today. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for what it means to be a Christian. Specifically, we think of our union with Christ. We rejoice that just like Christ died, we die to sin. And just like Christ has risen, so too we are raised newness of life. Help us as we seek to put off the old man and to put on the new, that you would be gracious to us, that you would encourage those here today who may be discouraged, that you would rebuke those today may be living in unrepentant sin. I pray that those who are depressed or those who are helping others who are depressed, I pray that you would give them great encouragement and great hope from the word and its sufficiency. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if your memory goes back far enough, uh, I began... Back in uh, April, a sermon series on the topic of depression. And since that time, we've had a uh, family vacation. Uh, Dave Saxton preached for us uh, last week. And so now we're kind of resuming our series after a a long break on it. Um, And I want to give you uh, maybe a little bit of... uh, uh, direction of where we've been, where we're going, and that sort of thing. Uh, first of all, the, the more big picture is uh, where we're going in uh, our preaching schedule here. We finished uh, over a year in the book of Genesis. Uh, we transitioned to a short series on persecution, currently in a series on depression, and then Lord willing, wrapping this up in a couple of weeks, we will uh, transition to a sermon series on the book of 1 Corinthians. I do have, by the way, those little books for you, okay, that has the Bible text on one side and that has the notes on the other side. And so I plan on uh, getting those uh, to you here uh, shortly. Um, We have, including today, Lord willing, three remaining messages on uh, depression. And I want to give to you uh, our outline so far of where we've been and where we're going. Uh, We started off with a brief word on psychology, a biblical definition of depression, the many occasions of depression, the cause of depression, how to identify depression, the psychosomatic nature of depression, unbiblical responses to depression is where we're at today, and then Lord willing, next week will be how to counsel those who are depressed, and we'll wrap up with the cure to depression. Uh, maybe I should switch those last two. I don't know. I'll give you the cure first, and then based on that, here, here's how we go. But we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, 
So we are going to spend all of today on unbiblical responses to uh, depression. And I want to give to you, uh, and actually let me just say this as well, if this is your first message on this topic, what we're talking about today, I'm hoping to be a little bit of a self-containing message, but you really kind of need the past messages to kind of fit all of this together, as well as the future messages. This is part of a series, and there's a reason that it's a series. It all fits together. And so um, I would encourage you not to just take this in isolation today, but to um, go back and get the context um, if you have not gotten that. And so I'm going to give you part of the context right now, and that is... In the conclusion to the last message I preached before our vacation, I told you I wanted you to remember three things. Do you remember what those three things were? Did anybody remember those three things? Okay, I'm going to give them to you. Real, just kind of bare bones framework. We gave you the depression of, uh, or the definition of depression, and that is sorrow without hope. Okay. Remember when we said this, we said that this helps us to understand that sorrow is not sorrow is not the enemy. We're not going after sorrow. We should experience sorrow. If, if there are areas in your life, in fact, where you're not experiencing sorrow, that could be indicative of a problem. We specifically said defini- uh, the definition is it is sorrow without hope. And then we narrow down to the cause of depression. And we said the cause is specifically misplaced hope. You have attached your hope to something other than what you should be attaching your hope to. And then finally, we said that the symptom of depression is hopelessness. And so you can see the theme is really around this idea of hope. Um, And uh, we do want to build on this, uh, especially as we get to the cure of this. Uh, But I do want to remind us as well that we said that in our uh, definition itself, there was already a seed of the answer, right? Because we use the word hope. And so if we define depression by saying it is sorrow without hope, then we understand that the answer has something to do with hope. And so the seed of the answer is already given to us at the very beginning in our definition, Um, And we are, Lord willing, headed in that direction as we continue this. Let me remind you of just uh, one more thing here. We gave you some of the occasions of depression. And remember, we made a distinction between an occasion and a cause. We kind of have explained it this way before, but we said it's like tea in hot water. And so... When you take a tea bag and you put it in hot water, the hot water does not create that tea, but it pulls out something that already was there. And so that was kind of the illustration we used to understand the difference between a cause and an occasion. Occasion is something that may kind of draw something out. It may draw out the cause of a misplaced hope. And so when you get into a situation... Uh, it it could reveal the fact that I wasn't having hope in this particular way. And so we said that this was biology, uh, life circumstances. We spent a lot of time on wrong thinking. And so this was wrong thinking about grace, wrong thinking about the atonement, about faith, about God himself. 
We also talked about fears, a fear of the future or a fear of failure. These things can be occasions. What's going to happen in the future? And now I'm hopeless kind of a thing. It's an occasion of depression. We also saw that wrong behavior can add to this. Things like impulsiveness, living for the wrong things, a lack of discipline or bitterness, a lack of forgiveness. And then we talked about identifying depression. We said, uh, of course, the big one was hopelessness. But we also gave a couple more. We said misrepresenting reality. And remember this one, sometimes when we are depressed, we have a tendency to misrepresent the world around us. And we said that um, what uh, the secular psychologists refer to this as is as uh, cognitive distortions. They say that you're distorting the way the world really is. Their answer, of course, one of their answers is CBT. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy, and uh, they try to, in part of this, not all of this, but part of it, is to help people think right and true thoughts. And we said Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, think on these things. And then we also said guilt uh, is another way to identify depression. Someone who's constantly guilty could possibly be a way to identify them. Okay, so with all of this review in mind, hopefully you're brought up to speed a little bit here. Um, And uh, we're going to jump right into our topic, which is unbiblical responses to depression. As we all know, the human heart expresses its sin in multifaceted ways. There is no limit to the ways in which you and I, unrestrained by the Holy Spirit could express our sinfulness. We call this the doctrine of total depravity. And it is only God's common grace that prevents us from expressing our depravity, even unbelievers expressing their depravity, as much as they could. In fact, if God did not restrain us from our sinfulness and just let us go our own way completely... Uh, we would make Hitler look like a choir boy. We could go in some pretty wicked directions. And one of the things about this is that we have a tendency uh, to, to sin in chunks. One sin begets another sin, which begets another sin, which gives birth to another sin, and so on. Uh, you're no doubt familiar with the quotation from Sir Walter Scott's poem, which goes like this. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Sin has a tendency to compound itself. And what he's saying here is that when you tell a lie, you have to tell another lie to cover up that first lie. And then you have to tell another lie to cover up both of those other lies. And then you have to make sure that people that you've told different stories to don't talk to one another so that stories aren't matching up and all this kind of stuff. And it's this tangled web. Uh, Mark Twain is rumored to have said, uh, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. And of course, this is wisdom here, right? Uh, certainly we would say that you should ultimately tell the truth because this is what our loving Heavenly Father has told us to do. But he's giving a pragmatic reason here. 
you start to lie to people and you have to remember. But if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything uh, because you always are telling the truth and you don't have to cover up your stories like um, Sir Walter Scott reminds us. If we sin in one way, we often sin in another. And so I want to talk about what happens when we become depressed. Sometimes we seek out, because remember, this hopelessness. We're, we're trying to find hope. We're, we're almost on this expedition to find an answer, to find hope, to find a solution. And sometimes what happens when we do this is we end up looking for hope in a place that God has not called us to look for hope in. And oftentimes, we look for hope in sin. And what happens when we do that is we engage in that first sin, and now we engage in another one, and we engage in another one, and we go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And I'm going to talk about a couple of additional motivations, but I'm going to give to you one that I think is, is probably one of the top motivations. You are sorrowing without hope, you are depressed, and you are trying to find a way out, and the motivation that you run to is this, I just deserve a break. I, I just need an out. I just, just give me five minutes of a break from this, and therefore I'm going to go and pursue X, Y, and Z. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, as you know, I've been quoting some of his, um, his sermon series uh, on uh, spiritual depression. And uh, if you, it's in book form, by the way, and if you haven't read it, I would highly encourage you to do that. I'm going to bring to you a quotation here from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones on this topic of sometimes running to other things when we find ourselves depressed. He says, this third danger is that when we thus become weary and tired or depressed, we will resort to artificial stimulants. You know the temptation. It's been the ruin of many a man who's built up a profession or a business, and then he gets into this weary or depressed state. He's conscious that he has not the vigor and the vim that he once had, and he does not feel, as the phrase puts it, on top of his job. He doesn't know what to do about it himself, and then somebody suggests to him that what he needs is some kind of a tonic or a drug or whatever. The whole danger in connection with the drinking of alcohol comes in at that point. Many a man has ended as a drunkard who started by taking a little alcohol to help him carry on. And people take to drugs and various other things in precisely the same way. Now, he goes a little bit further, and I'm going to give you this little extra part here, because he kind of uses this as an opportunity to uh, roast the, se- the seeker-sensitive church. <laughs> and so what Lord says, this has a very important and vital spiritual application. I have seen people in the church dealing with this general spiritual weariness in that very way. They work up some kind of excitement, or they adopt new methods. They say that they must rouse themselves out of this, so they put on some new program. He's talking about the church now. He's saying the church. He's saying, first of all, individually we get depressed, and then we say, give me some kind of a tonic. And then he says the church itself kind of falls into this maybe lethargy or something, 
and things aren't going the same way that we thought they were going to go. Maybe attendance has dropped off, and now we need a stimulant at the church too. And so he says they put on some new program. He says, have you not seen it sometimes in the advertisements out, outside church buildings? Can you, think, can you not think of certain churches that are always putting out some fresh announcements or finding some new attraction? Such churches are obviously living on artificial stimulants. And it's all being done with this idea in mind. Now that sort of thinking in the spiritual life and the life of the church is comparable to, only, uh, to one thing only on the natural level. And that is the man who takes to drink or drugs in order to give himself some excitement or work himself up. So he's actually kind of uh, maybe killing two birds with one stone here. But he's saying just like Christians individually will turn to artificial stimulants to kind of give them some hope or help them through this sorrow, so too the church will resort to artificial stimulants and say, let's try this, let's try this. Obviously, the word is not enough for the church, and obviously the word is not enough for the Christian in this particular context. The reality is that when we are depressed, we oftentimes pursue artificial stimulants instead of Christ. And that list can be a mile long, and I'm going to give you a few of these things that we pursue. The first list is things that um, uh, Jim Berg has suggested, and so I'm just quoting these straight from him. But he gives a list of things that we pursue when we are depressed, and here they are. Indulging your lust and passions in sexual fantasies or activities in order to feel good again. Going on a wild spending spree in order to forget what has been troubling you or to make you feel better. Ignoring important responsibilities at home, work, or school because you want to break from pressures. Binging on food to experience a little bit of pleasure amidst all the disappointment. Attempting to overdose or contemplating some other form of suicide. Turning to alcohol or drugs for a pick-me-up during the downtimes. Indulging in some reckless or dangerous activity because of the temporary rush it gives. In addition to Berg's list, um, as I was talking to someone here in our own church, here were some additional suggestions that were made to me. Gambling, overworking, procrastination, sleeping in, binge-watching TV, movies, social media, or video games, constantly playing music, lying about your activities, hobbies, or sports at the expense of responsibilities, avoiding people, multiple social media accounts or fake profiles, people-pleasing, cutting. Now, I said a moment ago, one of the main motivators of this, of pursuing these particular sins, is I need a break. But I'm going to give you a list of some of the other motivations, and I'm sure we can add to this. In fact, I know we can add to this. But here's a few um, that came to mind. Some of the motivators of pursuing these particular wrong responses are this. Uh, I deserve a break, we already said. I've already sinned once, so I might as well just indulge and sin again. And whenever... 
I need to feel something, anything. It's, it's this, I got to get out of this numbness. Just whatever it is, I have to feel something. I need to silence my conscience. My conscience maybe is convicting me about something. I need to silence it. I just need to have some pleasure in my life. I need to esca- escape the pain. I can't let people know the real me. Or it's opposite. I must let people know the real me. I have to do this because this, this is the real me, and I have to let them know this. And, of course, all of these lists that I have shared here are not exhaustive. There are numerous avenues that the human heart pursues. At the end of the day, all of these things have one thing in common. And we're going to narrow in on Proverbs 14, verse 12, that says this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. What Christianity is, a large part of what Christianity is, is this claim. You do not have the right to define what is right. This is what Scripture tells us again and again and again. You are not the authority to determine what is right. You don't have the ability to say, I know what is best for me. Now, this is, the, the world is screaming this with, with, with a megaphone right now. The, the world is saying, only you know what's best for you. Only you know the best way to express your gender or your sexuality or whatever it might be. And the Bible again and again says that your identity is something that has been reserved for Christ to define not for you. Now, hopefully, when you do become depressed, you don't pursue these unbiblical responses or these unbiblical remedies. But when we do, there are consequences to these things. Now, what is the... Con- what, what is the we, we could talk about all kinds of results. What is the common result of pursuing these things? Well, one of them is frequently that you become more depressed. Now, I realize that sometimes you pursue an artificial stimulant and it gives you a temporary reprieve. I understand that. I'm looking more long-term than this. You become more depressed. So it's like this unending cycle where you're depressed and you pursue sin to make you happy. Then you become more depressed, and so you pursue more sin, and it's just this unending cycle again and again and again and again and again. Now, I want to add one more that we've already implied, but I do want to state it a little bit more clearly. And the reason that I want to state this one kind of under its own heading of sorts is because this is where our culture is right now. So we have to talk about where our culture is in the moment. Um. We mentioned, and this was in Jim Berg's list, 
we, we mentioned that one of the wrong things that we pursue, or, or sometimes pursue when we are depressed, is pursuing sexual passions, sexual lusts, in, um, in all kinds of avenues. And I want to say that there are some specific ways in which our culture has put this in the forefront. Whether we like it or not, our culture has made everything about sex. This is where we are as a culture. We, we didn't pick this. Our culture picked this, and everything is about this right now. Uh, the agenda of the sexual revolution is ramping up quickly, and too many Christians, I'm concerned, have been inoculated and are soft-pedaling this issue, partly because they have embraced our culture's redefinition of personhood and self. And I said this a moment ago, one of the things that's in the water that we're drinking right now is that the culture has said, you have the ability to define who you are. Now, this has spillover into the sexual arena. You have the authority to define that. And what we're saying is the Bible says you don't have the right to, it, to define that. Um, and so because of this, because we as Christians have kind of embraced that a little bit, like, yeah, I guess we can kind of define who we are, that I think in, as a result of that snowballs so that we say, well, they can define who they are too, and we soft-pedal this issue of sexuality. One of the unbiblical responses to depression is to pursue not just what we said a moment ago, heterosexual lust and adultery, but all other forms of sexual depravity. Uh, if you have not read this book, I'm going to recommend you read this book, okay? Irreversible Damage... The Transgender Craze, Seducing Our Daughters. Now, I'm going to give you one, because I'm recommending this book, I'm going to give you just one caveat on this book, okay? The author of the book, Abigail Schreier, does believe that there are some, and albeit in, in her words, rare, but that there are some scenarios in which pursuing gender transition might be a good thing, okay? I'm just going to throw that out there and say we strongly disagree with that, okay? Um, outside of this, she has written a book that is incredibly and remarkably insightful on what the transgender revolution right now is doing specifically to our daughters. Um. I would recommend this to parents, and especially parents of girls, to read this book. Um, I think there's a lot of ways in which you'll benefit. In fact, she, and I don't know, I don't think she's a believer, um, she has come down very strong on saying, do not let your kids get on social media at all, because she traces a lot of kind of where that goes. Um, anyway, that's uh, an extra plug there. But I do want to give you a statement from this book. Uh, she, she gives a story about this girl named Helena who transitions to male. Transitions in quotations there for you. Uh, and here's what she says about this uh, girl. 
She says, in high school, Helena suddenly adopted the gender language she had discovered online. Over the span of two weeks, her blog posts went from depressive posts, so this girl's struggling with depression, about her life, to this. And she says, quote, queer, trans, gender fluid, non-binary, demiboy, valid problematic, cishets, gender, every last word like a virus. And then a little bit further, she continues and says this, Helena came out on uh, social media, her number of followers skyrocketed. Her online friends enthused over her decision to come out and her cute new name. She was freer online than she had ever been in real life, which is a statement itself about social media. Social media offered the possibility of an edited persona. That's a fascinating statement. Social media offered the opportunity of an edited persona of only showing the best of herself only when she wanted to. Helena had never been anything but another white girl. Suddenly, she was a member of an oppressed minority. This is interesting that she makes that connection. I want to make at least three observations from what we read here from this book. The first one is that Helena has experienced some form of depression. She's going through depression. She's posting about her depression. And then secondly, her decision to come out generated a flood of affirmation and even if only temporarily created or made her into somewhat of a celebrity, thus curing her depression. You see the connection there? And then there's a third observation to make, one that uh, may be a little bit harder to make, but Abigail Schreier makes this connection. Schreier observes that to be a member of an oppressed minority was actually desirable. It was actually something that would be a step up. It was actually an improvement to be an oppressed minority, and it brought her superstar status. The point here is simply to see this. Sexual perversion is sometimes the knee-jerk reaction to depression. I need to find something, anything, to cure myself of this depression. And there is an exhilaration temporarily that someone feels when they go from depression to celebrity status. I mean, can you imagine just for a moment this girl who's writing constantly about how depressed she is, and then all of a sudden she comes out And then her followers jump through the roof. She's constantly getting affirming posts. She feels good. This must have been the problem. This must be the answer because I feel cured. To be a victim in our current culture is to wear a badge of honor. Now, to be sure, there are true victims. But in today's culture... People can become victims whenever they want to and all of the status that comes with it. Proverbs twelve fifteen: the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 16 and verse 2, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. What theme is this? 
you don't have the right to define who you are. Isaiah 5.21, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. The Bible does not speak highly of our wisdom. It doesn't doesn't have a lot of good things to say about the conclusions that you make and I make apart from Scripture. In fact, it says if that's you, if you are not looking to Scripture and you are making conclusions about sexuality, about gender, and you cannot go back and say, this is what the Bible says. The Bible says, woe to you. The Bible goes further than this, of course, because our broader theme for today is that those who sin go on to sin further and engage in this cycle of sin. And that is seen here in Isaiah chapter 30 in verse 1, where Israel is being rebuked, and we read this, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine. Of course, that statement alone, we could say, summarizes the unbiblical responses to depression. You carry out a plan that's not mine. You, you seek for a cure that's not mine. <laughs> and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit. And then here's the key phrase, that they may add what? Sin to sin. From this sin to that sin to that sin to that sin to that sin. We see this same theme in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 12 through 13. And we saw this verse 12 in our sermon series on persecution. And now we see verse 13 here. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from what? Bad to worse. You pursue the sin, and then you pursue the other sin, and then it's a cycle again and again and again and again and again. And of course, as the old saying goes, an ounce of prevention is worth what? A pound of cure. Better to say no to the sin today than to say no to the sin five years from now when it's compounded and compounded and compounded. Do not allow yourself, no matter what you are going through, to fall into sin. You are accountable for that. Depressed people, oppressed, genuinely oppressed people, whatever you're going through does not give you a pass to sin. The Lord does not say, break whatever rules you want. Obviously, you're, you're, going, you're in a tough spot today. There is no excuse to sin. The problem, one of the problems, is that this is the time when we most need Christ. 
When we're going through this, when we're going through this, this valley of depression, how much more do you need Christ? And yet this is the time that we're going to run away from him? We have a tendency to think, well, I'm on the mountaintop today. I, I don't, you know, I'll just wait until. We, 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 need Christ. we need to prepare on the mountaintop for while we're in the valley. We need Christ. Times of distress are times for greater reliance on Christ, not, not less. Not, not just license now. I could do whatever I want. People who are disoriented can make a lot of foolish decisions. Now, keep in mind, I am not saying don't be compassionate to the disoriented person. We're going to talk about this a little bit when we talk about how to help someone through depression. And one of the big themes in that message is going to be that we would have compassionate hearts, that we would have patient hearts, and that we would be long-suffering. But when we are disoriented, we can make a lot of foolish decisions. Uh, My wife and I recently have watched a documentary slash TV series on Mount Everest. Um, It's a fascinating, been a fascinating show. I still don't get people who do this, okay, (laughs) because of the high percentage of fatalities or, if not fatalities, permanent damage for the rest of your life, losing fingers and toes and all these kinds of things. But anyway, it's, it's interesting, to say the least, uh, watching these people climb Mount Everest. Um, one of the most common uh, difficulties in climbing Mount Everest is altitude sickness, or what is also called acute mountain sickness. Uh, this is a condition that happens uh, because of the low amount of oxygen, and the body has a very difficult time adjusting to how little oxygen is available. So what they end up doing as part of their training and preparation for this is that hikers will spend um, several weeks at one of the base camps, and basically it is just so that their bodies become acclimated to the low level of oxygen. There's no way that someone could come from here and just hike straight up Everest and call it a day. I mean, you have to spend a long time along your body just physically to acclimate. Uh, What ends up happening is your body produces more blood cells. And of course, more blood cells can carry more oxygen. And so you have to allow your body time for that to happen. So during this time of acclimation, the hikers will experience uh, headaches, nausea, vomiting, and possibly, most extremely, even death. And I'll just give you a little context here. Here in Orville, we are at about 1,000 feet above sea level, okay, about where we're at. The highest mountain peak in the United States is Denali, which is in Alaska, and the elevation there is 20,000 feet. Okay, it's the highest peak in America. Mount Everest is exactly 29,000 
32 feet above sea level, which, of course, as all of us know, is the highest point on planet Earth. Um, According to the Cleveland Clinic, higher than 10,000 feet, 75% of people will get mild symptoms of acute mountain sickness. So just to give you an idea, 10,000 feet, about 75% of us will get this, and they have to go 29,000 feet. One of the symptoms of severe acute mountain sickness is confusion. And uh, this is where the documentary was very fascinating. Of course, you probably have heard of the Sherpas, uh, the locals who take the people up, and they're kind of in a whole different category themselves because their bodies already are acclimated. Um, I think there's talk of maybe a little bit of genetic difference as well, and they just, you know, from what it looks like to me, just hike up there with no problem and, you know, call it a day and come back. Um, But anyway, the Sherpas, they take people up to the summit. However, there's kind of the head honcho director, leader, coordinator guy. And this guy actually stays. He doesn't go up with the hikers. He stays at one of the base camps. And uh, the reason, and, and well, and what he does is they have radios, and he communicates with radios with the hikers and the Sherpas. And so he has this basically telescope that he's looking up on the mountain, and he says, you know, okay, the weather's doing this, the weather's doing that, uh, there's hikers up ahead of you, blah, 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 do this, do that. And he's giving the directions, he's giving the orders, and he's telling them, you have to come back. You're experiencing these symptoms, so turn around, you can't summit, you know, which is a huge blow to these, these people. But here's the reason why he stays at base camp, because when he's making life and death decisions, he wants to have clear thinking. He doesn't want to be up there possibly experiencing confusion himself, and so he stays all the way back down and gives them orders and commands with the clearest possible thinking that he can have. Now, I may bring this illustration up a second time for our concluding message to make a second point. But I do want to make one point from this today, and that is this. People who are in a crisis, like depression, can have a tendency to make unwise choices. There's, there's not enough oxygen getting to the brain I, I'm in this valley, and I don't know what's up and what's down. I, I don't know if this is right. There's a lot of noise going on, and I'm really confused right now, and this person is telling me this, and this person is telling me this, and I'm reading this here, and I'm reading that here, and I'm just really struggling right now, and I don't know what to do. And whether it is acute mountain sickness, or depression, we need a voice outside of ourselves to give us direction. And of course, in our illustration, this voice is the leader guy giving them orders via radio. 
And for the Christian, it's the word of God. Cling to the word. I mean, cling to it. It is our lifeline. It, it is the very words of Christ himself. Remember, we said, as we started this, depression is sorrow without hope. Its cause is misplaced hope. Its symptom is hopelessness. Don't continue to misplace your hope. If we take every single unbiblical response to depression, we can find one thing they all have in common. Every thing you pursue that is an unbiblical response to depression has this in common. doesn't give you the hope that you want. It might temporarily. Drugs cannot give hope. Alcohol cannot give hope. Sex cannot give hope. The sexual revolution cannot give hope. TV cannot give hope. Your cell phone cannot give hope. Relationships cannot give hope. Anyone who tries to sell you these commodities is simply a snake oil salesman. It will not satisfy you. And and I'm, I'm telling you, even pursuing things that are good if we pursue them without Christ, also don't give hope. I love you. I began this sermon series saying, there might be a few things that some people might find a little bit offensive in this. And as I said then, I'll say it again, if I'm missing the mark, do, do not refrain from coming. Come to me, please, because I want to talk through this. At the bottom of it all, here's what I want you to know. I, I, I really, truly, sincerely, and honestly, and wholeheartedly believe that our only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ. And we are one by one just stripping away all of these other things to simply say it's not this and it's not this and it's not that. And what you need is Christ alone. This sermon series has been in large part, we haven't gotten to the cure yet, in large part has been an exercise in identifying wrong paths. We've said that depression is sorrow without hope, and then we said that hope can't be found here or here or here or here or here. Not there, not there, not there, not there. This philosophy doesn't have it, and that philosophy doesn't have it, and and this wise sage doesn't have it. To be a Christian 
is someone is to be someone who is banking on Christ alone. Do not remove the word alone from that statement. Christ is everything to the Christian. Everything. If Christ is not everything to you, then you are going to pursue these wrong things, and you are going to find yourself depressed and anxious and on and on and on. I don't know that we're really convinced of this. You know, when you get married, you're saying no. Marriage is a lot of no's and one yes. I mean, there's like a million. There's more than a million no's. You're saying no to the millions of other women that are on this planet, or if you're a woman, the millions of other men that are on this planet. All of that so that you can say yes to one. We, we, we don't disparage that. We don't, we don't say, boy, look at you had to see it. You said no to all that. Said, because I said yes to this one and got this one. To be a Christian in the same way is to say no a million times to a million other philosophies and a million other hopes, false hopes. It is all so that you can say yes to one, and that is Christ. Well, well, this doesn't satisfy, this doesn't satisfy, this, this, but I get Christ. I have him, and he's better than all of this. Christ is the one hope that is really and truly fulfilling and satisfying. And so I simply have just one point of application today, and that is this. When you are depressed, reject your own wisdom, and we can add to that, you don't get to define who you are. But reject your own wisdom. Do not get stuck in a cycle of adding sin to sin. And rest in the wisdom of Christ. What he says is good. Thank you, God, for your grace to us and for your mercy. Thank you for Christ. May we be those who are satisfied in Christ alone. May we be Christians who delight in your word. And I pray that those of us who may find ourselves either depressed or helping others who are, may we run to the wisdom of Christ, we ask in his name. Amen.